Good morning. Good morning. All right. Hopefully everybody has a, a lesson in front of you that says of creation number four. And uh, what I want to encourage you to begin our thank you to turn to Genesis chapter one, Genesis chapter one, and just to kind of orient our minds to the direction of thought this morning, I'm going to read uh, verses 26 and 27, Genesis chapter one, verses 26 and 27. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And let us pray, shall we? Lord, thank you this morning for the, the privilege to assemble together and to worship you and to praise you and delight in thee. I, I thank you for uh, each one that is here this morning, and we thank you for your precious word, and we thank you above all for the eternal and glorious salvation that we have in the person of Christ, and, and thank you that we can uh, consider these things of eternal import, and I would pray this morning for the, the help of your Holy Spirit to just to convey a truth about your your work in creation, especially the creation of man and the uniqueness of that and the significance of that. So I pray that you would uh, give us uh, eyes to, to see and ears to hear what you would have for us this Lord's Day and administer your grace to our hearts. And might it even be a, uh, a helpful preparation for further worship this morning. So we commit our time to thee. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this is our, our third study, if my count is right, on the, the fourth chapter of the London Baptist Confession of Faith, or the, the theme of creation. Um, and I want to read um, just a, a part of a, a sermon here by C.H. Spurgeon, and then we'll, that to kind of hopefully move our thinking a little bit further into the subject at hand. Then we'll do some review and look at uh, paragraphs two and three, paragraphs two and, and three from that chapter of the Confession. So this is a, a sermon by, by Spurgeon from back in uh, January 17, 1858. Uh, it's based on Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20. Uh, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it's because there is no light in them. And Spurgeon says, when men will not learn of God, how huge their folly grows. If they despise the wisdom that is from above, how grievously does God allow them to prove their own ignorance? When a man will not bow down before God the Most High, immediately he, he buildeth for himself an idol, he maketh an image of wood or stone, and he degradeth himself by bowing before the work of his own hands. When men will not receive the scripture testimony concerning God's creation, straightway they begin to form theories that are a thousand times more ridiculous than they have ever endeavored to make the Bible account of it. For God leaveth them, if they will not accept his solution of the problem, to grope for another. And their own solution is so absurd that all the world except themselves have sense enough to laugh at it. When men leave the sacred book of Revelation, uh, my friends, where do they go? We find that in Isaiah's time, they went to strange places. For it says in the 19th verse that they sought unto familiar spirits, unto wizards that did, did peep and mutter. Yea, they sought for themselves concerning the living amongst the dead and became the dupes of necromancers, which is those who would call up the dead. Not caring to have God in their hearts, forsaking the living fountain, they have hewn out to themselves cisterns, 
which are broken and hold no water. Oh, that we may each of us be more wise, that we may not forsake the good old path, nor leave the way that God hath prepared for us. What wonder we should travel amongst thorns and briars and rend our own flesh, or worse than that, fall among dark mountains and be lost amongst the chasms thereof if we despise the guidance of an unerring father. Seek ye in the word of God and read, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and these are they that testify of Jesus Christ. Well, you see thoughts there from Spurgeon to kind of get our minds moving in this direction. Just a little bit of review so far, what we have considered, I think our first time together, is um, uh, the fact that God of the, the God of the Bible is the creator of the world. That assures us that he will not forsake us in times of difficulty, Isaiah chapter 40. That the God who made the heavens and the earth is able to help you and I. If he has done the greater, he can do the lesser. Uh, that God is the creator is a great motivation for heartfelt praise and worship. And these are some of the texts that would make that point. A persuasion that God of the, the God of the Bible is the creator of the universe and all that is in it. It's a central component in praying for boldness, and I think that is brought out in, in the fourth chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. Um, considering the fact that God is, is your creator, it's a great preventative to living a life of vanity and to no purpose, Ecclesiastes 12.1. Uh, natural man's response to the clear evidence of God's glorious creation is a validation of his depraved and wretched condition, his rejection of it. And then number seven, the rejection of God as creator is a, a necessary prerequisite for moral degeneracy in its extreme forms. And uh, Romans chapter one, I, I think, makes that very clear what happens when God is rejected. Then paragraph number one, it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness in the beginning to create or, or make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days and all very good. And then the lesson that we uh, was based on the teaching of Robert Shaw, this sex, section teaches that the world had a beginning. Secondly, that the world had a beginning is implied in the phrases before the foundation of the world, before the world began. Thirdly, that creation is the work of God. Fourthly, that creation extends to the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible. Fifthly, that the world and all things therein were created in the space of six days. Sixthly, that all things were created very good. And in the seventh place, that God made all things for the manifestation of his own glory. And now we're, we're moving from paragraph one to paragraph two. And so the movement here, it's still the overarching theme of creation, but from creation in general to the creation of man in specifically. And uh, Sam Waldron, in his work on the confession, calls paragraph one the overview of creation, and then paragraph two the apex of creation, that is with respect to the creation of man. And then he has three subdivisions that I think are helpful, uh, the constitution of man, the identity of man, and the integrity of man. The constitution of man, the identity of man, and the integrity of man. And uh, let me just read paragraph two. Um, paragraph, you can see the WCF, that's because my Bible works program, I use the Westminster Confession of Faith. But this is actually two paragraphs in the London Baptist Confession, but it's one paragraph in the Westminster Confession, but it contains the exact same material. So we see the number six down there in the word beside. That is the third paragraph in the, in the London Baptist Confession. So anyway, here's uh, paragraph two. After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls. 
endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his own image, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject unto change. Besides this law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the other creatures. So we'll, we'll look at this under six headings this morning and kind of see how the, the time goes. So number one um, is that God created male and, excuse me, male and female with reasonable and immortal souls, with reasonable and immortal souls. Genesis one twenty seven. God created man in his own image, in the image of God who created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 2, 7, uh, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a, a living being. Just a little bit of a, of a side note here. Uh, this is from uh, John Murray's Collected Works. And he had uh, just, I thought, some interesting thoughts or helpful thoughts related to the idea that man is created from dust and what is the significance of that. He says in, in dealing with Genesis 2, 7 and with the distinctive features it sets forth, we must take account of the various elements. He writes, The Lord God formed man, uh, formed the man from the dust of the ground. Dust from the ground informs us that matter, previously created by God and taken from the earth, entered into the composition of man's being from the outset. When Adam was made in accordance with the design and resolve of Genesis 126, it was not by simple fiat, by what has been called creatio ex nihilo. In making man, the word of God and the action corresponding to it operated upon existing substance, and this substance of material character was subjected to formative action on God's part, action prior to any other action. Dust from the ground belongs to man's constitution from the outset. It's not an appendage or accident. This is confirmed later when God said to Adam, Dust thou art, Genesis 3.17, it belongs to his person. And just, he suggests a couple of corollaries to this. Um, one is that man has an affinity with his non-animate environment, with the ground on which he walks and from which to a large extent he derives his sustenance, the ground which it is his task to till, dress, and subdue. There's congruity between man and his environment, and for this there is a necessity. If it were not so, there would be a discrepancy between man and his habitat, between man and his task an incompatibility that would have negated the verdict. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And then he suggests another uh, affinity. He says, man has affinity with other animate beings on this earth. There's a striking similarity between Genesis 2.17, excuse me, 2.7 and 2.19. In the latter we read, and the Lord God formed from the ground every beast of the field and every fowl of the heaven. There's an affinity in respect to constitutive element, even though there may be an important difference between dust from the ground and the ground. There's also affinity in the formative action, so we fail to appreciate the witness the Bible bears to man's affinity with his environment if we overlook these data. So I just thought that was some helpful thoughts with respect to man's created from the dust of the ground. Ecclesiastes 2.7 says, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Um, and these three verses, Ecclesiastes 12.7, Luke 23.43, and Matthew 10.28, all at least bear on the immortal character of the soul. Uh, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Luke 23:43, and he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. It is after he dies, he has an existence. 
Uh, Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Um, and let me just read to you a text here from Matthew chapter 25 and verse 46 that bears on this, the, uh, the immortality of the soul. Matthew 25, 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Very, very concise, short text that speaks to the idea that man has an eternal existence one place or the other. I won't turn to it, but kind of the sobering example of that with the unsaved is, is Luke chapter 16, when we read about the rich man um, in hell. Um, man is a compound existence made up of two great parts, a soul and a body, Robert Shaw writes. His body, though formed of mean materials, is a piece of exquisite workmanship, but his soul is the noblest part of his nature. By his soul, he's allied to God and angels, by his body to the beasts that perish and to the dust under his feet. So you have two great parts, the, the soul and the body, or the material and the immaterial. Genesis 2-7, man's body is formed from pre-existing material. The breath of life comes directly from God. Man becomes a living soul. So there, there's these two great parts, body and soul. And there are some, and I've, I don't think I've ever had a discussion with anyone here about this. Some of you might... Um, suggest that man is a tripart being body soul and spirit and there's some who think that way that's okay you have to be fully convinced in in your own mind uh in my own study i i i think that they're used interchangeably there's different nuances of meaning but i, I think that they're used interchangeably soul can be defined as the spiritual and immaterial part of man um and it's it's it takes a lot of work to kind of look up all the terms. Uh, the term for soul, pasuke, about 103 times. The term for um, spirit, pneuma, 381 times. So if you want to do a word study, you need a few days to work through all those things. But, but turn, if you would, to uh, it's, it's the ninth page in your notes uh, where I have additional notes. And I just speak a little bit more to this of, uh, you know, is man, a, 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 is, it just, um, a, is he a two-part or a three-part being? And just a few thoughts here that, that are related to this. Um, Burkhoff writes that man's con man consists of a material and spiritual element, and so sometimes it's body and soul, like in Matthew 10, 28. Uh, other, other times the comparison is body and spirit, Ecclesiastes 12, 7, and the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. And then with respect to death, death is described as giving up the soul. Uh, Genesis 35, 18, it came to pass as her soul was departing for she died. Also, uh, Acts fifteen twenty six. Men who have risked their lives, and that's um, the term soul is translated the, the same. This this word, um, for the, this word pasuke for soul here is translated lives. Um, and then it's also described as giving up the spirit. It's described as giving up the soul, but also described as giving up the, the spirit. Luke 23, 46, next page here. Luke 23, 46, Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having, um, having said this, he breathed his last. Acts 7, 59, they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Um. Wayne Grudem wrote, uh, some argue that the spirit is the higher faculty in man that comes uh, alive when a spirit becomes a Christian. That the spirit of a person then would be that part of him or her that most directly worships God. God is a spirit that they, they that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. That's true, obviously, in John 4, 24. But to sustain that distinction, I think it's kind of hard. And other activities of the soul, number four here, um, Psalm 62, 1 
A psalm of David, my soul waits in silence for God only. From him is my salvation. Psalm 63, 1. Uh, O God, thou art my God, I shall seek thee earnestly. My soul thirsts for thee. My flesh yearns for thee in a dry and weary land. Psalm 103, 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Psalm 25, 1. To thee, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Psalm 42, 1. Um, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for thee, O God. And then next page, First um, Samuel 1, 15. Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord. I'm a woman oppressed in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I poured out my soul before the Lord. Psalm 35, 9, my soul shall rejoice in the Lord. So the soul is presented here as a part of man that's directly connected to worshiping, praising, knowing, and loving God. Psalm 119, 20, my soul is crushed with longing after ordinances at all times. So... Um, Man is a compound existence made up of these two great parts, and you can kind of wrestle with that. I think it's, it's just two parts, and that soul and spirit are used interchangeably. Um, a. a. Hodge um, writes, uh, this is in the middle of page four, Man was created immediately by God and last of the creatures. According to God's plan of successive creation and of progressive advance in complexity and excellence of organization and endowment, man's true place is last in order as the immediate end and crown of this lower creation. The scientific advocates of the hypothesis of organic development have denied that man was created immediately by God and have held that the higher and more complex living organisms were developed gradually and by successive stages from the lower and more simple as the physical condition of the world became gradually favorable to their existence. And that man at the proper time uh, came last of all from the last link in the order of being immediately below him. That man, on the contrary, was immediately created by God his body out of earthly materials previously created and his soul out of nothing is rendered certain by the following evidence. And the first point that he makes is the hypothesis of development is a mere dream of unsanctified reason, utterly unsupported by facts. And if you're, if you're looking for a text for unsanctified reason, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, they're foolishness unto him, neither can he understand them. So he, he's not being led and directed by the Spirit. And just a, a couple of examples of this, and this kind of fits in with what Spurgeon was talking about. When, when you reject God and you don't believe in creation, then anything becomes possible. I have a, a book that some of you may have looked at by uh, C.S. Lewis called God in the Dock. Are you familiar with that book? Uh, there's a question. Materialists and some astronomers suggest that the solar planetary system and life as we know it was brought about by an accidental stellar uh, collision. What is the Christian view of this theory? And here's Lewis's response. If the solar system was brought about by an accidental collision, then the appearance of organic life on this planet was also an accident. And the whole evolution of man was an accident too. If so, then all our present thoughts are mere accidents, the accidental byproduct of the movement of atoms. And this holds for the thoughts of the materialists and astronomers as well as anyone else's. But if their thoughts, that is materialism and astronomy, are merely accidental byproducts, why should we believe them to be true? I see no reason for believing that one accident should be able to give me a correct account of all the other accidents. It's like expecting that the accidental shape taken by the splash when you upset a milk jug should give you a correct account of how the jug was made and why it was upset. So just 
there's a Lewis anyway. Uh, another example from this, that this, this is from Wayne Grudeman. It just, it makes the point that Spurgeon is making when there's a rejection of God as a creator. People that are very smart, I mean, very intelligent, will embrace things that I, I think seem pretty bizarre to just whatever a, a normal person would, would be regarded as. Grudem writes that many unbelieving scientists have been so influenced by the cumulative force of the objections brought about by evolution that they've openly advocated novel positions for one part or another of the proposed evolutionary development of living things. Francis Crick, who won the Nobel Prize for helping to discover the structure of DNA molecules, proposed in 1973 that life may have been sent here by a spaceship from a distant planet. A theory, this sounds kind of weird, uh, a theory that Crick calls directed panspermia. Uh, to the present author, it seems ironic that so brilliant scientists could advocate so fantastic a theory, a theory without one shred of evidence in its favor, all the while rejecting the straightforward explanation given by the one book in the history of the world that has never been proven wrong, that has changed the lives of millions of people, that's been believed completely by many of the most intelligent scholars of every generation, that has been a greater force for good than any other book in the history of the world. Why will otherwise intelligent people commit themselves to beliefs that seem so irrational? It seems as though they will believe in anything so long as it's not believe in the personal God of Scripture who calls us to forsake our pride, humble ourselves before him, ask forgiveness for failure to obey his moral standards, submit ourselves to his moral commands for the rest of our lives. To refuse to do this is irrational. So just a couple of examples there. That this, is, this is the direction of thought when, when the being of God is, is rejected. But okay, number one, the hypothesis of development, it's a, it's a dream of unsanctified reason, utterly unsupported by facts. Not one single individual specimen of an organized being passing in transition from a lower species to a higher has been, been found among the myriads of existing species nor among the fossil remains of past species preserved in the, in the record of the rocks. And he makes um, reference there to authorities in his own time. Number two, uh, the, the scripture expressly affirm the fact of man's immediate creation. The fact of man's immediate creation We've read all of those verses pretty straightforward, pretty clear. Then number three, this truth is rendered obvious also by the immense distance which separates man from the nearest of the lower animals, from the incomparable superiority of man in kind as well as degree, and from the revealed and experienced fact that God is the father of our spirits, that we are immortal joint heirs with Christ. Hebrews 12, 9, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? <clears throat> Excuse me, Romans eight seventeen. And of children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is a this this idea here of the, the radical distinction between man and animals. Grudem has a helpful quote here. It, it, it's a little bit long, but I, I, I thought it was helpful. He says, um, we have not only physical bodies, but also immaterial spirits, and we can therefore act in ways that are significant in the immaterial spiritual realm of existence. This means we have a spiritual life that enables us to relate to God as persons, to pray and praise Him, to hear Him speaking His word to us. No animal will ever spend an hour in intercessory prayer for the salvation of a relative or a friend. 
connected with this spiritual life is the fact that we have immortality. We, we will not cease to exist, but we'll live forever. In terms of mental aspects, he writes, we have an ability to reason and think logically and learn that sets us apart from the animal world. Animals sometimes exhibit remarkable behavior in solving mazes or working out problems in the physical world, but they certainly do not engage in abstract reasoning. There's no such thing as a history of canine philosophy. For example, nor have any animals since creation developed at all in their understanding of ethical problems or the use of philosophical concepts. No group of chimpanzees will ever sit around the table arguing about the doctrine of the Trinity or the relative merits of Calvinism or Arminianism. In fact, even in developing physical and technical skills, we're far different than animals. Beavers still build the same kind of dams they have built for a thousand generations. Birds still build the same kind of nests and bees still build the same kind of hives. But we continue to continue, excuse me, we continue to develop greater skill and complexity in technology and agriculture and science and nearly every field of endeavor. He says our use of complex abstract language sets us far apart from animals. I can tell my son when he was four years old to go and get the big red screwdriver from my workbench in the basement. Even if he had never seen it before, he could easily perform the task because he knew the meaning of go, get, big, red, screwdriver, workbench, and basement. He could have done the same for a small brown hammer or a black bucket beside the workbench or any of dozens of other items that he perhaps had never seen before but could visualize when I described them in a few words. No chimpanzee in all of history has been able to perform such a task, a task that has not been learned through repetition and reward, but is simply described in words that refer to an item that the hearer has never seen before. Yet four-year-old human beings can do this routinely and think nothing of it. Most eight-year-olds can write an understandable letter to their grandparents describing a, a trip to the zoo or can move to a foreign country and learn any other language in the world, and we think it 